so many books that I read when I was young, they have such an impression on you and they stick with you in such a meaningful way. And really, they do help shape who you are, I think. Um, does this mean I'm one day going to become a boxcar adult? That is correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel you slowly morphing into a boxcar a, shape. A grown-up boxcar children? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Okay. Definitely going to happen. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's show. We are discussing the wonderful rom-com starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. No, not Sleepless in Seattle. You've got mail. You've got mail. What a wonderful sound. <laughs> so That's th- uh, not a sound that I've heard in, in a hot second. It's been a while. Yeah, this this movie was lampooned a little bit because of the heavy product placement by so many people, including Starbucks and obviously AOL. Not sure it did enough to keep them around. Yeah, they did their best by trying to star in a, in a rom-com, but didn't work out so well for those companies. AOL is pretty dead and buried as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think Time Warner is just moving on without them. So the movie came out in 1998 and was pretty successful. I think it, had, it did about $250 million worth of business and has been a major rom-com success. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely held up over the years. And I think it's one that a lot of people go back to time and time again. So yeah, I would say it's held up pretty well. It had been a while since you and I had rewatched it. You and I, we like this movie, right? We've seen it a number of times. I I don't even know if I could put a number on it, but it's somewhere at a, like in the at least a dozen range, I would think. Carla, fun fact, I am actually wearing the t-shirt that I was wearing the first time I watched this movie in 2000. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that is... I have so many thoughts on that subject. Okay, tell me more. Yeah, so... Uh, as you know, I was a mathlete in high school. I do know this. And uh, this was the shirt that we wore to convention my junior year. And it was a real low moment for the team. We got second place after a long streak of first place. Oh, no. And I was really personally conflicted. I remember this day very vividly because uh, we watched You've Got Mail, of course, for the first time after it was over. But I also had a really strong individual performance, but the team lost. So it was, it was a bit disappointing. Mm. But also what was memorable is my family got internet that day. So oh my gosh. after having a bunch of individual success, team loss, watching this wonderful movie that I was going to see many times over the next 22 years, I got to go home and have a cable modem set up at my house. And I never lived the dial-up days like Joe and Kathleen Kelly. What a roller coaster of a day for little Robert Davidson in the year 2000. I'm assuming it was the year 2000 because I see that on your shirt it was, yes. Uh, I did not watch this in 1998. I think somebody had it from Blockbuster at their house, and we were all kind of down after getting second. Okay, I'm having such a hard time picturing a young group of guys in high school hanging out and watching You've Got Mail, which is a pretty stereotypically like female-oriented rom-com movie. You guys were all super into this? Well, I think you mistake the mathlete community if you assume it is all men. There were plenty of women. This was actually at a girl's house. I think we also watched an Austin Powers movie as well. Okay, good to know. Good to know. 
So this wasn't like a hot date situation. This was like a, a group of people hanging out. Yeah, I think we just watched whatever somebody's family had at their house from Blockbuster. None of us had been home in a few days. It was just what happened to be there. We were all pretty bummed to have lost. Okay. To be fair, I'm not like a sexist person assuming that all people who are mathletes were men. Just the only mathletes that I know that you talk about from your high school experience were all men. But apparently you've just been hiding all these, you know math hotties for me and not telling me stories about them. Carla, our math team had cheerleaders, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> so, uh, you've got mail, fun movie. I, I, there's a couple of fun facts that I wanted to share about this. One of them is, uh, so the cast in this movie is pretty cool, right? You've got Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Parker Posey, Greg Kinnear, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, what's he doing in this movie? Interestingly, he was in this movie because Tom Hanks suggested him. Did you know that Dave Chappelle was originally offered the part in another Tom Hanks movie, Forrest Gump? He was offered the part of Bubba. That blows my mind. (laughs) Yes, he was offered that part and he turned it down. He thought this movie is going to be a total flop. I don't want to do it. I've got some other projects I'm working on and I want to focus on those instead. And then it kind of dominated the Oscars and was a highly successful movie. I think Tom Hanks felt bad for the guy and gave him a little bit of a handout, a little helping hand in 1998 for, for You've Got Mail. Interesting. I mean, I don't know how much You've Got Mail helped his career, but it seemed like Dave Chappelle was going to be okay no matter what. I mean, his main skill in life is as a stand-up comic, right? And he's still doing pretty well to this day. I mean, I say pretty well. He's doing fabulously well to this day as a stand-up comedian. Oh, I think he made the right move by not being Bubba. I, I just can't picture him in Forrest Gump. I don't yeah. see that working. No, he does. I mean, the guy who ended up playing Bubba seemed like the perfect fit. I cannot picture Dave Chappelle either. That yeah, does not seem like a good fit for him. Yeah. Another fun fact uh, that showcases Tom Hanks's talent. So there's this scene in the movie where he's in this bookstore and he's got these his two young family members with him. And they have been on this like big all day outing where they have balloons and a goldfish and books and probably some cotton candy in there somewhere. And as Tom Hanks's character is leaving the bookstore, he closes the door and it accidentally catches on one of the balloons. Tom Hanks opens the door and says, oh, good thing it wasn't wasn't the fish. Totally ad lib, totally on the fly, just an actor being yeah. human giving a really good job there, just improvising. And I think the the writer and director thought it was such a good line that they kept it in the movie. Yeah, that is a great line. And I love that it's ad-libbed. And that just feels very Tom Hanks. He's definitely, I, I think the internet refers to him as like America's dad. And that feels, that feels very accurate. He just has that vibe to him. He's just so completely wholesome. Like he's never had any kind of scandal, at least not that we know of. Please don't ruin Tom Hanks for us universe. But yeah, he just seems like such a purely good human being. It's nice that we have some people like that in the world. Yeah. Um, Also, the laptops that they were using, high-end laptops. So the two main characters, right, they're they're writing each other emails and stuff on six, $7,000 laptops. Interestingly, in many of the scenes in the movie, they've made these dial-up connected laptops. This is before the, the days of Wi-Fi everywhere in 1998. They've made these dial-up connected laptops very portable like they move them in lots of places where they don't have a phone cord attaching them to the wall seems a little bit unrealistic i know they were fancy expensive devices but not that fancy yeah they were pretty pricey back in the day for sure i don't think i knew anyone who had laptops in 1998 that was 
That was a little far into the future for me. So if you didn't know, You've Got Mail is actually a remake of another movie. It's based on a movie that came out in 1940 called The Shop Around the Corner. And I've actually seen that original movie. It's obviously in black and white because it's from 1940, but it's pretty sweet. It's Jimmy Stewart as the the male lead. Um, and it's it's a nice little love story. The plot differs a little bit, as you might imagine. Yeah, they, they didn't have dial-up back then. They did not have dial-up in 1940. So the story is about two people who actually work together in the same, I think it's a leather goods shop, and they don't particularly get along in real life. In fact, they bicker quite a bit, but unknowingly they're corresponding with each other, sending these anonymous love letters. And I forget exactly how they ended up becoming pen pals, but they are sending each other anonymous love letters and falling in love through these letters when in real life they're no, 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 bickering at each other back and forth. So it's it's a sweet story. Did you say the name of that was Shop Around the Corner? Yep, yep. Well, that's the name of the bookstore. Indeed it How is. How clever. <laughs> well spotted, Robert. Good job. Um, yeah, so the, the name of the bookstore in the 1998 movie um, is The Shop Around the Corner, which is obviously a nod to the original inspiration from it. Should we do a brief plot summary for those who haven't seen it in the 24 years since it came out? I mean, I think we should encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to press pause on this podcast and go stop and watch it. It's that good. You should definitely check it out. It is a very cute movie. And it just came out on Netflix. I think it was just recently added to Netflix's repertoire. So yeah, if you are a Netflix subscriber, then it's right there for the grabbing. But if it's been a few months since the last time you watched it, just a quick recap. So Kathleen Kelly, she has a a bookstore on the Upper West Side in New York City. She is dating Greg Kinnear. And she also has a bit of a side relationship over the internet through uh, some AOL emailing. Do you think they use the CDs? Surely that's what the CDs were for. Yep. I mean, they came in the mail like every other day. So surely that must have been. Yeah. So she had this online relationship with Tom Hanks's character, Joe Fox. Um, on the side, Joe Fox, his family owns a chain of book superstores. And they uh, he's dating Parker Posey, who is, uh, I think, a book editor. Mm-hmm. And Joe Fox's book company is putting in a store down the street from Kathleen Kelly's place, And of course, they have this online relationship, but in the real world, they are mortal enemies and the whole movie is a rom-com, right? So it's this, you know, situational irony where one of them knows something that the other doesn't, that the audience knows all about, and they're just slowly revealing and trying to coerce uh, Kathleen Kelly to like Joe Fox in the end because he has ruined her business, but he's also... uh, someone who she is otherworldly attracted to, at least through the internet. So, Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, We are definitely going to spoil this movie for you. I guess we've already spoiled this movie for you, but it's 24 years old and it's pretty much a classic. So I don't feel too bad about this. No. So like I said, Kathleen Kelly, Meg Ryan's character, she's dating Greg Kinnear I think he's a writer and he's kind of an eccentric guy. He's not Mr. Tech fan. He has a bunch of old typewriters that he's fond of. And at the very beginning of the movie, he goes on a little diatribe about something that he'd recently heard that was uh, trouble in the state of Virginia. 
This is amazing. Listen to this. The, the entire workforce of the state of Virginia had to have solitaire removed from their computers because they hadn't done any work in six weeks. That's so sad. Do you know what this is? No. What we're seeing here? It's what? the end of Western civilization as we know it. Oh. Hey, aren't you late? Technology. Name me one thing, one, that we've gained from technology. Electricity. That's one. You think this machine's your friend, but it's not. So... Oh. Did you know that this is actually a reasonably accurate point that the governor of Virginia did remove all of the games like Minesweeper and Hearts and Solitaire? Surely Free Cell. I mean, Free Cell is the one that people like anybody who was worth anything was playing. Free Cell was the best. Yeah. Uh, but they, I guess, removed those for real from state workers computers at yeah. some point. That does not seem super surprising to me. But my goodness, from the perspective of 2022, looking back at that just how quaint of an idea that was that people would be able to focus by just removing solitaire and free cell from their computers. Because today our attention is obviously being pulled in a thousand different directions all the time. There's so many people competing for our eyeballs and our brain cells. So yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about this idea of technology. Is Greg Kinnear right? Is it actually like a terrible thing? One thing that I think is kind of ironic about this, Greg Kinnear in the movie, really, his character really loves typewriters. He's like all about the typewriters and doesn't like the laptops. So I very much sympathize with that. I also like typewriters. I think they're pretty awesome. In real life, Tom Hanks, the actor, is a huge addict of typewriters. He loves typewriters. He's written books about typewriters. He's been on podcasts about them. Like he fully loves typewriters. <laughs> which I think is pretty fun. But what do you think? Do you think that Greg Kinnear's character is right here? That technology really doesn't do that much for us and is more evil than good? Well, no. I mean, I'm not a Luddite. Obviously, I'm doing a podcast show with you right now using advanced technology to put it together. Correct. Uh, <laughs> so the technological advances have done so many things for our society and have improved things in so many different ways. We shouldn't pretend that there aren't downsides. Uh, I think Solitaire and Minesweeper are pretty minimal. I think if we look at the world today from, you know, just look at your phone and all of the different notifications that you get. If you don't manage those pretty carefully, if, if you don't manage your settings, you're just going to get inundated with all kinds of noise and junk in your face. Um, that's really not a particularly healthy thing for most people. I, I think we don't do a great job of leveraging the technology that we have just as, as people in general. We take some shortcuts with a lot of it and we don't really think about some of the trade-offs that are coming. Yeah, I've, I very much agree. There are so many pros that we've gotten to technology. I mean, you basically can't get lost anymore in today's world, right? You always have a GPS in your pocket that's constantly updating with the latest information about where things are. And you basically can't be like cut off from society anymore if something bad happens to you and you need to call for help unless you're way up in the mountains, which is actually not that unrealistic for us here in Colorado. But for most people in most of your daily life, you're never going to be somewhere where you can't call for help. You always have that lifeline in your pocket. So, so many good things have come out of it, but it's also done a lot of damage to our psyche. So just this morning, I was outside doing some yard work and was listening to a podcast as I was doing it. 
podcast is The Good Life Project, which I highly recommend. And the host was interviewing the author of a book called Stolen Focus. And he was talking about how our attention span has just plummeted. And I think everyone in today's modern world would agree that it is so much harder for us to really zero in on a complex subject and just focus on it in a deep way. And I think most of us feel that we used to be able to do that so much better and we've gotten worse at it. And it's true, studies after studies bear this out that our attention span has decreased. So one of the things that they talked about in this podcast was a study that they've done where they have people sit in a room and they say, okay, here's a specific task for you to complete but you're going to get interrupted a lot. You're going to get emails and phone calls, and there's going to be a lot of different things pulling at your attention. And then they had other people just sit in a room and focus on the task and have zero interruptions whatsoever. And then immediately afterwards, they gave them a brief IQ test. And the people who had had lots of distractions did so much worse on that IQ test, about 10 points lower on average than the people without the distractions, which for comparison's sake, if you get somebody to take an IQ test um, while they are sober and then versus when they are high on marijuana, you are going to see a 5% drop in their IQ test according to, to the study that they're quoting on the podcast I listened to. So distractions are twice as bad for your ability to focus and think intelligently as being high on marijuana, which is pretty stark in my opinion. So I think Technology really is fine-tuned to distract us because that is the model. That is the way that so many websites make money is by getting us to become addicted and to come back over and over again for that constant dopamine hit of something new, something interesting, something fun, something snappy. And it takes us completely outside of that ability to be quiet and calm and focused. So sweet little Greg Kinnear here in 1998, I mean, they don't know the half of it, right? They don't know the, they don't know 10% of it. They have no idea how crazy things are going to get and how much harder it's going to be for people to focus. Yeah. It's funny. Multitasking, everything I've ever read has said that there is no multitasking. It's just rapidly jumping back and forth from thing to thing. And there is a big carryover effect and a lot of waste in that transition process. When, when I think about some of this technology stuff, I've read a couple of books by Cal Newport, including uh, Deep Work and A World Without Email. And he talks a lot about how hard it is for most knowledge workers to get into a state of deep work because of all the distractions and all the different things that exist. And we're talking about, you know, technology. Email, A World Without Email, tells a story of IBM, right? A group of pretty smart people when they first implemented an email system, they did a study of inner office communication, how many memos were going back and forth from different people and what this asynchronous communication looked like before they had email so that they could determine how much computing capacity they needed to allocate to this. Within a week, I think they had gotten to six times the email traffic that they had anticipated just with internal emails because it became so easy for people to communicate this way, people radically changed what they did. And so it's really interesting to me how some of the unintended side effects of things like technology today change the way that we work. One of the things that I try to do during my workday is set my email aside and only look at it in, in defined periods. I often fail. Uh, that doesn't work out for me all the time. But when I'm when I have a day that doesn't have a whole lot of meetings and a whole lot of interruptions, and I'm really trying to focus and make 
productive work on something that's complex and needs my full attention. I don't want my email bothering me. I don't want all these other distractions. I'm certainly not playing solitaire. Does that even come on computers anymore? I don't think so. Okay. Well, anyway, I think there is a point that some of this advanced technology has changed the way that we do things and it distracts us from being at our best and we have to be pretty resilient to not get sucked in. Yeah. I think people have different ways of, of managing this. One thing that often helps me is to to listen to music without lyrics, whether that's like techno music or classical music. I don't I don't discriminate. I like it all. But yeah, something that doesn't have a person talking in my ear or singing in my ear um, actually helps me to to focus a little bit better. But I mean, I think the reality is our brains are literally changing in response to this constant stimuli that we have coming from technology. And the only real way to deal with that is to change the way we interact with it, right? Setting timers on apps. Or we recently watched a um, stand-up comedy special with Aziz Ansari where he revealed that he's gone team flip. He's got a flip phone now instead of a smartphone. And I mean, if that's uh, that's, that's a really radical step to take, right? It, it removes a lot of the incredible conveniences that we have today, but it also gives you back your brain in so many ways. So it's something to think about, I think, for a lot of people that we're getting so addicted to our phones and figuring out a way to at least turn the volume down on that level of addiction can be really powerful. Well, let's rewind to 1998 when You've Got Mail came out because no one was going to be able to tweet about this bookstore coming. And instead, uh, we have a clip here with Tom Hanks and Dave Chappelle's characters talking about bringing their bookstore to the Upper West Side. Hey, you know what? We should announce ourselves to the neighbors. Let them know. Here we come. Oh, no, this is Upper West Side, man. We might as well tell them we're opening a, a crack house. They're going to hate us. As soon as they hear, they're going to be lining up to, to pick, pick at the, the big, big bad chain store. store that's out to destroy everything they hold dear. Yeah. Do you know what? We are going to seduce them. We're going to seduce them with our square footage and our discounts and our deep armchairs and our cappuccino. cappuccino. That's right. They're going to hate us at the beginning, but, but we'll get, get them in the air. <laughs> you know why? Why? Because we're going to sell them cheap books and legal addictive stimulants. Mm. In the meantime, we'll just put up a big sign. Coming soon, a Fox Book Superstore and the end of civilization as you know it. They're so cute, finishing each other's sentences like that. <laughs> yeah, they have a good dynamic. Oh, you can definitely tell by the music in this movie that it's a rom-com. Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. So this brings up the whole concept of chain stores versus like independent stores. And I think in New York City, people have even a stronger attachment to like their local independent stores and anti-big box store sentiments, but it's all over the country. I mean, people feel that way, certainly here in our our small town, right? We've got lots of independent stores, but we also have the big box stores, and you've got people who are fierce supporters of the small independents. So I think this is such um, an interesting thing to talk about through the lens of 1998, because you and I were, were very young. I was 14 in 1998 when this movie came out, and I didn't even realize that there were small independent bookstores. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I think we had a Taylor's bookstore down the street from us. And of course, I think we had like Borders and Barnes and Noble. And I just flat 
do not remember like a single independent bookstore. I remember used bookstores, which we often frequented, which were small and independently owned, but like a new bookstore that was not one of the big box people, I genuinely didn't know that they existed. Yeah, for me in Louisiana, we had a Books A Million and there was a Barnes & Noble that opened up that was exciting that people really liked to go to. It had a coffee shop inside. I kind of think Fox Books is supposed to be Barnes & Noble. Yeah, for sure. That seems to be the clear corollary. I, I suppose in 1998, it could have been Borders too because Borders was pretty much identical to Barnes & Noble back in the day, but they have since folded. I mean, bookstores have really taken a hit, as we all know, with the advent of Kindle and Amazon. Even if you like real books, a lot of people buy them from Amazon instead of going to a brick and mortar store. Well, I mean, if we if we extend this from bookstores to any kind of business establishments, these big box stores, they exist because they provide things at a lower price point, right? Yeah. They are able to operate more efficiently. They are able to use their volume and purchasing power to reel people in and get them to buy a wide variety of products all in one place. And they they have something that's compelling for the market. I, I wish we all lived in a world where we got everything that we wanted from small mom and pop stores and we were all excited to support them and felt like we were part of a small community and we knew our butcher and we knew our local book salesman and we had a relationship with a local tailor. But it's just too darn expensive, right? There are other options out there that are more cost effective. That's why you have a Walmart everywhere or a Costco or a Best Buy or you name it, big box store, they've got everything that you want and it's practical. It's generally less expensive. I guess Amazon is effectively the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it certainly crushes the business opportunity from those more local, unique establishments. Yeah, it very much does. And I am a little bit torn because on an emotional level, I completely agree. I think it would be so lovely if we lived in this world that you're talking about, it's sort of like a like a Disney movie, this small town, everybody knows everybody and it's cute and quaint and, you know, there's like one butcher and one candlestick maker and like that's that's what you have. But it's kind of a, a privilege to be able to live in a world like that, right? Because it is more expensive. High volume means you can afford to make less profit per purchase because you have so many purchases. So that is the model that these bigger stores are taking advantage of. They don't need to make a $2 profit when they sell you a box of Kleenex. They can make a 20 cent profit because they're going to sell hundreds of boxes of Kleenexes, whereas your local grocery store that's, you know, independent, they may only sell like four that day, right? So they've got to have the bigger markups at the independent stores. It's just flat math. You can't argue with it. Yeah. I think small independent stores in any genre today exist only when they provide something unique. They have to cater to a very small market that is really excited to go there and use them, or they have to provide a set of services that for whatever reason, it's not profitable for the big box stores to offer. You got to do something special. Yeah, I completely agree. That has to be the model. If you want to make it as a small retailer in America today, you've got to offer something that's unique. I haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, but I have kind of a knitting addiction. That's sort of a recent development in my life. It's not healthy. (laughs) And there is a local yarn store here in Longmont that sells like really 
nice, beautiful, handcrafted, hand-dyed yarn. And it is much more expensive than going to Michael's or Hobby Lobby and getting the yarn that you can find there. But it is much more unique. So if you want to make something that's really special and have that really high quality yarn that you know is going to be truly unique, you have to go to someplace like a, a local yarn store. So that is a business model that that works because they sell something that is truly unique. And they also have like much more of a personal touch and they can help you with things. You can literally like take your knitting in there and be like, hey, I messed up and they'll help you fix it. So yeah, those are the kinds of things that I think can still work in today's economy. And there are thousands of different little niche markets like that, right? So I certainly hope that those businesses continue to thrive and we do try to support them when we can and when we feel like it makes makes sense. But it's just flat expensive to shop local and shop small. So I don't think people should be shamed for not doing it when it just doesn't fit within their budget. So there certainly is a stigma today about chain stores and chain restaurants in particular. When do you think you picked up on that? Because I know as a kid, I was blissfully unaware of that stigma. Yeah, so was I. I had no idea that the Olive Garden was not like a genuinely nice, lovely place to have dinner until I was maybe, maybe in my like mid-20s, early 20s, just completely clueless about it. And I think that's because you and I grew up in sort of like standard middle, middle-ish class. And for us, like going to the Olive Garden was a really nice thing to do. Going to Chili's was, was a really nice thing to do. And we just, I had no idea that there were these like small, unique, independent kind of restaurants where there were really high quality chefs just was a hundred percent oblivious to it. Yeah. Same here. I think it was sometime in my, my early twenties when I woke up to the fact that going to some sort of chain fast food establishment um, and, and stepping it up to a chain like fast casual place was not perceived by a lot of society as some great thing. Those places are great. They serve a, a nice piece of the market. They are wonderful uh, and reliable. And it, it's funny, you know, I, I travel a decent bit for work and sometimes I'm with other folks and some people are really passionate about making sure that they go eat somewhere local when they're on the road and I'm always happy to be with them because they make, they push me (laughs) to put forth the effort and it's usually a great experience. I have to admit when I'm traveling by myself, I often get lazy and default to the places that I know are going to be fast and let me take care of the things I need to take care of. And it'll be simple. I've eaten at a lot of Chipotle's around the country, Carla. (laughs) We do have a Chipotle problem. You and I both really enjoy it. But in general, we always have a better experience when we do branch out and we try something that's actually local and that's not just like, you know, basically mass produced, right? I mean, you know what you're getting with a chain restaurant, but that can be kind of a bad thing because you're, you know that you're missing out on something that's different and could expand your horizon. So I'm really glad that we have moved beyond that and that we now are aware of better restaurants that exist. But um, I also think the way that we were up was, was probably really healthy because the Olive Garden is a nice restaurant. And if you're growing up in a snobby environment where people are like turning their nose down at that and being uppity about it, I think you probably turned out to be more of an uppity person. So I'm grateful for the the upbringing that we had and that we weren't. 
food snobs. I agree. I think we've had a great life. Um, and that takes us back to our movie because our main character, Kathleen Kelly, played by Meg Ryan, is starting to doubt whether or not she's living a great life as her business is struggling. Her in-person relationship isn't so in- going so great. And she's got this online relationship that she kind of bears her true soul to. Sometimes I wonder about my life. I lead a small life. Well, valuable, but small. And sometimes I wonder, do I do it because I like it or because I haven't been brave? So much of what I see reminds me of something I read in a book when shouldn't it be the other way around? I don't really want an answer. I just want to send this cosmic question out into the void. So good night, dear void. So she's typing away in the background of this clip. And I watched carefully several of the different clips where both Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks were typing. And they were, despite Tom Hanks like being a typewriter aficionado, neither one of them seemed like they were typing anything remotely close to what was actually being printed on screen. <laughs> like they're just, their hand movements were not correlated to their actual voiceovers. Um, what's interesting, I believe Meg Ryan got her first personal computer when she was making this movie. So okay. maybe she didn't quite know how to type, but I, I thought that was kind of funny. So she has this terribly tragic sounding thing that she thinks she leads a small life, but I feel like that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, she runs this absolutely charming, small children's bookstore, and she gives this kind of impassioned speech at one point in the movie about how children's literature is so important because that reading you do when you're so young becomes part of your identity in a way that no other reading does in your life. And man, I just feel that to my core because so many books that I read when I was young, they have such an impression on you and they stick with you in such a meaningful way. And really, they do help shape who you are, I think. Um, Does this mean I'm one day going to become a boxcar adult? That is correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel you slowly morphing into a boxcar a, shape. As a grown-up boxcar children? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Okay. Definitely going to happen. But really, children's literature is such an important piece of overall literature because you read it at this incredibly impressionable age. So I think she does an absolutely beautiful thing. Her store is like a mecca that people come to and they help children pick the books that they think will really resonate with them. I think it's just a delightful thing to do with one's life. Well, I think the measure of the, the size of your life is the size of the impact that you have on the people in the world, right? And if you want to grow your life, it's it's to have a a more consistent, more positive impact on people, whether that's people local in your small community or at a much broader scale around the world, Kathleen Kelly clearly has a wonderful impact on so many people in New York City, right? Her, her bookstore, like you said, is a haven for people who want to to disappear into the world of, of reading and, and everything that comes with it as a child. Families love her. The writers seem to love her. Everyone who comes into that store seems to know her. And ha- she's clearly having a major impact on their lives. And that's certainly not a small existence. Yeah, I thoroughly agree. I think she's just done a beautiful thing with her life. So there's a a woman named Gretchen Rubin who writes about happiness and I think has a podcast on happiness. 
And her advice to people when they're struggling with a, a life decision, should I make a move? Should I take this new job? Should I marry this person? Whatever it is. And she always says to them, choose the bigger life because it's such a subjective thing and f helping people to kind of frame it in that way helps them to think, well, which one would be a bigger life in my eyes? Because there is no one definition of what it means to have a big life or a small life. So if, if this doesn't feel like a big life to her, then I think it's great for her to make a change. But from my perspective, that seems like a, a lovely and very full, rich, big life. Yeah. So she has her line in here about she wants her life. She feels like her life reminds her of what she's read in a book rather than uh, having what she reads in a book trigger memories of the things that she's experienced on her own. What do you think about that? I think she is right to want to experience lots of things in the real world and have, you know, whatever it is that she considers to be a big life. I think that's an important way to look at things. But, um, you know, the world of reading is also very rich and wonderful. And I don't think there's anything wrong at all with having things that happen in real life remind you of something that you read in a book. Oh, I think it's a fantastic thing, right? She, she, I think she has the right idea that it's way too easy for us to sort of get in a rut and not try new things and not explore new stuff. Maybe we're only eating at Chili's and not trying this, not chain restaurants. That's true. <laughs> but uh, really, I think there's an opportunity for her to travel and do some more things and get to know and experience the world from a different perspective. Um, she shouldn't be scared of those opportunities. I think it is really hard for a lot of people to break outside of their comfort zone. But if we reflect on our lives, virtually every time you get outside of your comfort zone, something positive happens. Yeah, that does seem to be where the real meat of life is, is stepping outside of what's, you know, your safe little comfortable box that you live in day to day and trying to push those boundaries and expect more out of yourself. I think that's always a, a positive thing for people. And I do think, so we talk a lot about financial independence and, you know, we're part of the financial independence community here in Colorado. And within that community, I think there's a lot of people who have this idea that we're going to save up enough money to retire at a young age. And then we're going to live this crazy bucket list life where, you know, we're just like going to visit the Taj Mahal and take that classic tourist picture where we're holding up the Tower of Pisa. And we're going to go to the pyramids in Egypt and we're going to go bungee jumping and we're going to go skydiving and we're going to go horseback riding on the beach and just like one major crazy experience. That's a big life. <laughs> well, it can be a big life if that's the if that's really what you want out of life. But I do think that it's easy to slip into a mentality of treating experiences as basically just like a shopping list. And I think what's really rich and important and what fulfills people in life is creating things, helping people, giving back to your community, being part of a community. And all of those things are really hard to do when you're running around jumping out of airplanes all day and, you know, bareback horse, horseback riding on, <laughs> on a beach with your hair flowing in the wind. All of those are things that sound lovely in theory and that make for a good like Instagram feed, but they're not actually deeply rewarding and enriching. And I think a lot of people who reach financial independence sort of immediately jump for that 
Instagram worthy lifestyle and then realize, I think I actually want something a little bit more in life. I think I want to, you know, dig down and try to make something or do something or be a part of something. And it's hard to do that while also being an Insta influencer kind of, kind of person. So true. Well, in the movie, Meg Ryan's character meets Tom Hanks's character at first and doesn't quite realize exactly who he is. He knows, she knows that he's Joe. Just call me Joe. Just call me Joe, but not Joe F-O-X, right? Doesn't know that he's (laughs) Joe Fox, uh, ringleader of Fox bookstores coming to ruin her life. She sees him at a party again and they have kind of an awkward interaction. Someone whispers to her, I can't believe you're talking to Joe Fox. And she's a little bit fired up and gives him a bit of a piece of her mind. And they're having a bit of a heated discussion at the, uh, at the buffet line. Look, the reason I came into your store is because I was spending the day with Annabelle and Matt and I was buying them presents. I'm the type of guy who likes to buy his way into the hearts of children who are his relatives. There's only one place to find a children's book in the neighborhood. I, that will not always be the case. And it was yours, and it is a, a charming little bookstore. You probably sell, what, $350,000 worth of books in a year? How did you know that? I'm in the book business. I am in the book business. I see. And we are the Price Club. Only instead of a 10-gallon vat of olive oil for $3.99 that won't even fit under your kitchen cabinet, we sell cheap books. Me, a spy. Oh, absolutely. I have in my possession the super-duper secret printout at the sales figures of a bookstore, so inconsequential yet full of its own virtue that I was immediately compelled to rush over there for fear that it's going to put me out of business. Zing. <laughs> Tom Hanks is really uh, coming on strong there. I love that whole scene because she gives him a hard time about taking some of the caviar off of one of the plates in the buffet line. And he's just like, to hell with you. I'm taking even more. You know, that that always makes me laugh because in the movie Big, which also stars Tom Hanks, I'm pretty sure there's a scene where he tries caviar and he hates it. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'll just like spitting it out as fast as he can. So he's come a long way since his big days. Now he's a big boy and he likes caviar. Tom Hanks is growing up right in front of our very eyes. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I can't resist. This is pennies and popcorn. We like to get into the nitty gritty of the finances of our characters, right? So we get this number, $350,000 of sales in books every year. And she's like, what? How did you know that? So it seems like that's pretty close to accurate based on her reaction, right? So I crunched some numbers on this to see if that feels realistic at all. Guess what? It doesn't feel super realistic, so Meg Ryan leads what appears to be a pretty cushy life. She has this lovely apartment in, I don't know, New York real estate very it's well. It's the heart of the Upper West Side. Yeah, right? I mean, it looks like a really nice brownstone, I think is what they call it. It looks very, very nice. It's furnished beautifully. Everything in it looks pretty expensive and tasteful. And, you know, we see her out like shopping and buying flowers. And she shops at the expensive looking grocery store. Like she seems to have a pretty cushy life. But let's break this down. So $350,000 of sales in books every year. So according to what I've seen online, most bookstores get a discount of roughly 40 to 50% off the retail price to buy their inventory of books. So best case scenario, about half of that 350 is gone just for buying the inventory. That's it. 
I mean, I suppose that they may be selling it for more than the average retail price. Yeah, that's possible. But it's possible. For the sake of argument, let's continue. Okay. So if half of $350 is gone to buying inventory, that means we're down to $175. $175,000. Sorry. And we see in the movie that she has three employees besides herself. Now, one of them does say that she's part-time. One of them is older, and we don't really know what the story is with her, she seems to have been a friend of Kathleen Kelly's mom. Maybe she's volunteering. I don't know. But And then she has another guy who seems to be full-time. So between those three employees, I don't think there's any way she's getting away with paying them less than $60,000 a year collectively. Yeah, I mean, it looks pretty clear to me that the bookstore is open, what, at least six days of the week, maybe seven. They're not. It's not like they shut down before dark every day or anything. They're, yeah. Like, they got to have multiple people. She's not there every day, all day. Yeah, you would hope not. Yeah. So there's got to be enough other staff members to make it work. So at least $60,000 out of that one seventy-five has got to go to salaries. Yeah, she's criminally underpaying her people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that seems like the lowest that she could possibly get away with. And I feel like that kind of assumes that Birdie, the older woman, works for free, basically. So one seventy-five. After inventory, now we're down to 115 after salaries. Rent has got to be her other big expense. So I did just a little bit of nosing around for what commercial real estate on the Upper West Side in New York would go for today. I think about $75 per square foot per year would be a pretty good deal based on just a brief look. But that seems roughly right. Now we're taking this back to 1998. So obviously everything's going to be quite a bit less, but... It could even be a third of that, yeah. It could be, it could be. But I'm thinking her bookstore looks like it's roughly 2,000-ish square feet. I think it's a reasonable approximation for the you know the customer-facing area. There's also probably some space that's not customer-facing as well. Exactly. They've got to have like a back office. They've got to have a place to keep their inventory that's not out on the shelves. So I'm thinking... Two to 3,000 square feet is probably pretty reasonable. So there's no way she's getting away with paying less than at least like $50,000, $70,000 in rent every year. So if we do some quick math, that's $350 minus $175 minus $60 gets you down to $115 minus another. I mean, if we call it $80,000 in rent, that gets you down to $35,000. So maybe we add back another like 25, give her some benefit of the doubt there. Yeah, but she's got to have insurance and utilities. Exactly. Um, yeah, there's still so many other things. I mean, we haven't even talked about taxes at all. Um, losses and like shrinkage, right? Exactly. There's always something built in for shoplifting, uh, mistakes that are made, you know, lost inventory, bookkeeping mistakes. I mean... All of those things go into a typical small business, credit card fees, advertising, like there are so many things just chomping into that profit margin. I don't see how it's possible that she takes home more than like $30,000 a year, best case scenario. So not quite enough to live her lifestyle in the Upper West Side, you don't think? Definitely not. I mean, I know we're talking about 1998, but even back then that was not nearly enough to live that cushy of a lifestyle in a fancy part of New York City. Sounds like she's ready to go hang out with the Sex and the City gals. They should get together because they apparently live in the same fake universe where 
10 cents will buy you like a fabulous dinner <laughs> and a couple of pairs of Manola Blahniks and that'll last you for months. So yeah, it does not at all seem realistic. So what I found fascinating about this $350,000 number is just how aghast Kathleen Kelly is that Joe Fox would have an idea of what her business looks like. And I think this really typifies their, the different spaces that they occupy in the book business, right? He says he's in the book business and she says, no, I'm in the book business. I don't think she really is, right? She is passionate about books and she has this wonderful knowledge and expertise about all the different products that are on the market. But at her core, I don't get the sense that Kathleen Kelly is truly a business person. If we, if we look at Joe Fox, he's the complete opposite, right? He is a guy who doesn't really know that much about books and authors and isn't keeping pace with the most current trends. Uh, but he is certainly extremely knowledgeable. And it's not surprising at all that he would have a clue uh, what the likely business numbers look like for a store like hers. He knows what hours they run. He knows how many employees she has. He has a rough idea of how big her store is. Mm -hmm. It's not that complicated for him to figure that out. Um, it's, but it, I think it's kind of telling, right? Like, if you want to be successful in business, his business knowledge is going to trump her passion almost every time, right? I think a lot of times we think all it takes to be successful in a business is an understanding of what your consumers want to buy and the passion to try to get your product to the market. But in the end, you have to understand the market research. You have to understand what it's going to take to, to do better than your competitors if you really want to thrive. Do we think it would be crazy for someone who's thinking about opening up a new, we're talking about chain restaurants earlier. If you're opening up a McDonald's or some other chain establishment, there's going to be some research by that, that corporation to go understand what the market potential in your area looks like before they let you go make that investment. Sure. Right. And they're going to know what a typical burger joint pulls in and what the revenue looks like. And if you don't know what that looks like yourself as somebody thinking about opening one up, your chance of success is pretty darn low. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, they do seem like they would make a great team, right? Having someone like her on the team of a Fox Books or a Barnes & Noble is really valuable. She is bringing a lot to the table, and she's going to be able to help them stock the books that she thinks will sell really well. But yeah, you can't have just one or the other. You need both to, to really make a business thrive. What I thought was interesting was that, that Parker Posey, Tom Hanks' girlfriend character, when, when it's clear that she's going to go out of business, Parker offers her a job to be a book editor, a children's book editor. And I think that's the perfect use of her skill, right? She is already great at defining what is, is wonderful for children and is a good arbiter of taste. Putting her in that editor position will help people improve their product. It will help ensure that the best things make their way to the marketplace and, and be really successful for that publishing company. And I think she'd be fantastic at it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think she'd do great. Tom Hanks' reaction when Parker Posey says that she's offering her this job is to say, I don't see her working with you. She lacks that killer instinct. And it's true that Parker Posey's character is very, very different from Meg <laughs> Ryan's character in a great way. I just adore Parker Posey and think she's she's awesome. But um, she's obviously not a super nice person in this movie. So Tom Hanks is right that they're very different. But I disagree with him that she lacks that killer instinct. I mean, she's already been 
doing that for years, deciding what's good enough and what's not good enough to go in her store and to put her kind of like earlier back in the process, what's good enough to get published and what's not, I think would be a fabulous fit for her. So I think she has that killer instinct. I think she does too. So in the movie, you know, things don't work out. Fox Books comes in and despite all the ad campaigns and all the work that Greg Kinnear's character does to try to make sure that people care about the shop around the corner, the the revenue that they bring in around the holidays isn't quite enough and they are forced with making a pretty difficult decision about what to do for the future of the bookstore. So, dearie, what have you decided to do? Close. We're going to close. Close. Closing the store is the brave thing to do. You are such a liar, but thank you. You are daring to imagine that you could have a different life. Oh, I know it doesn't feel like that. You feel like a big fat failure now, but you're not. You are marching into the unknown, armed with nothing. Have the sandwich. Well, not nothing. I have a little money saved. If you need more, ask me. I'm very rich. I bought Intel at six. <laughs> so cute. The, the character Birdie, who's the older woman you hear talking there, is just super adorable. She's fun. Well, I think Birdie's advice is just spot on, correct, and, and so accurate. It sounds like she's just trying to be a nice person. But I think her advice is totally right. If we take Kathleen Kelly's experience, so she doesn't take the job with Parker Posey, she takes some of this downtime that she has and decides to write her own children's book, something that I don't think she ever anticipated that she would go do, and certainly something she wouldn't have had the the bandwidth to do if she continued operating her small bookstore. Yeah, I think so too. I think Birdie is being very, very wise here and bringing a fresh and exciting perspective to this challenge that she's facing I know she's sad and heartbroken about closing down the store, especially because her mother was the one who opened it and she had such a a special bond with her, but she is daring to imagine that she could have a different life and she's going out there and going to make something happen that's completely her own. So I think it's exciting for her. Birdie's characterization of her as feeling like a big fat phony, I think is how a lot of people feel when they've started a business and it didn't succeed or they have lost their job, whether they got fired or just simply laid off. They feel like they didn't have the right mix of talent or whatever, and they feel pretty down on themselves. And study after study shows that these are huge opportunities. And a lot of times when these things happen, especially firings, they are opening the door to a whole new world of possibility where you can actually get to do the thing that you're really good at, the thing that makes your life better. Yeah. And bigger. So I just thoroughly agree. You know, it sounds kind of silly and cliche. You know, it's kind of that old line about when a door closes, a window opens or something like that, but it really is true. Not, I do think you have to make it true, right? You can't just sit around waiting for opportunities to fall in your lap. You got to go out and talk to people and research and try to find something that is going to be a better fit for you and then put a plan in place to make that happen. Nothing nothing comes from nothing, right? You've got to get out there and, and hustle and find what is going to be your new direction in life. But 
this is a chance for people to do that. And it's so hard for people to really feel that and internalize it when they're right in that moment of having just been fired or having just closed down a business or whatever it might be. But with a little bit of time, I think you get to heal and get to that place where you do realize there's a whole world of possibilities out there and I'm going to go chase a new one. Yeah, I was listening to one of the podcasts in the Freakonomics family. I don't remember which one. And they talked about you know, decision-making for a lot of people. And when people are thinking about making major changes in their life and they're weighing two different options or multiple options. And oftentimes when there's a clear winner, it's easy to go make the choice to, to do whatever whatever path you want to go down. When you have two options and they feel like they're the same, the recommendation for, for from that podcast was go with the one that is the bigger change, right? Move away from the status quo. Nine times out of 10, you'll be happier for it. For it. There's a lot of people who, you know, we have that call back to the, the quote she had earlier about feeling like she's not brave enough to go do the things she wanted to do. And Bertie's right that closing the store is the brave thing. Making the change, moving away from what she knows in her comfort zone is likely to lead to a way better end result in the aggregate for her. Yeah, I like that advice. And it's similar to what Gretchen Rubin says about choosing the bigger life. It's kind of choosing the bigger change, right? Which I think for a lot of people can be kind of choosing a bigger life. It's a completely different direction and a pivot. And a lot of times that does make people a lot happier. And if it doesn't, guess what? You can do it again, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's the great thing about change. Uh, There's always opportunities for it. So one final thought I have on this last clip is the line about, you know, you are daring to imagine that you can have a bigger life because we are so enmeshed in the financial independence community. When I hear that, I think of the FI community and the fact that that is what so many people in that community are choosing to do, right? They are choosing to imagine a very different life for themselves and a very different life than what society tells us we should do, you know, like buy the big house, have 2.5 children, work at the same job for 50 years and then retire at age 65 or 75 these days. And like, that's your life. There you go. That's it. And so many people are daring to imagine something different and bigger and bolder, which I think is a really exciting thing that's developing in the FI community. And I hope that idea spreads more and more as time goes on. Yeah. I'm hopeful that we can all not think we lead small lives, but can do whatever it takes to be brave and enrich our lives to the fullest to make sure it's as big as it can be. Yeah. Well, we sure hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and go watch. You've got mail again. I might watch it tonight. (laughs) We'll see. It's such a cute movie. It's very uplifting. If your heart does not like just completely melt at the end when they play somewhere over the rainbow and Brinkley comes out. I mean, come on guys. It's the cutest thing that's ever happened in the history of cinema. It's pretty good. (laughs) So we hope you guys enjoyed this show and go forth, live big lives, make big changes and... And find some AOL CDs. (laughs) Yeah, you might have to dig deep in some thrift store. Dig dig real deep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys, we'll catch you next time. Take care.